Hello everyone and welcome back to Inside Art Scroll, where the books you read and the people who write them come to life. Today we are joined by prolific author, renowned writer, Jonas and Rosenblum, who's kind enough to join us from his home in Yerushalayim. Thank you, Jonas, for joining us. So we're here today to discuss a brand new wonderful book of yours called A Tap on the Shoulder about the life and times of Rabbi Meir Shuster. Let's start off with your connection to Rabbi Shuster. Did you know Rabbi Shuster during his lifetime? And how did you get to write a biography about this legendary Kirov pioneer? I did know Rabbi Shuster. I first, uh, when my wife and I came to Israel in 1979, we went into Orsameach. Uh, we came expect, expecting to only stay for the summer, and we came into Orsameach. And uh, shortly thereafter, they gave us an apartment. And shortly after that, Rabbi Schuster would uh, start calling us and asking us if we could take Shabbos guests. I mean, we were very new. We were very raw Balei Tshuva, but he still asked us to take uh, Shabbos guests from a very early stage. So uh, what would happen is on Thursday night, he would, the phone would ring and my wife or I would pick it up and there'd be absolute silence on the line. And I learned to say, is that you, Rabbi Schuster? And, and then he said, oh, yeah, yeah. How many can you take on, on uh, uh, Leil Shabbos? And I would think to myself, how could it be that somebody who can't speak and initiate a conversation over the phone with somebody he knows could not, uh, could go up to dozens and dozens of complete strangers every day, every single day for 25 years, uh, and he never really became that much more articulate or that much glibber. He never became more glib in his speech. Now, the truth is, that's not the first time I met Rabbi Schuster. In 1976, I had finished law school. I was taking a year off before practicing law. And I was in uh, Ulpan Etzion in Jerusalem's Baca neighborhood. And uh, during lunch break one day, the young men and young women were sitting out sunning themselves and conversing, and all of a sudden Rabbi Schuster appears on the scene. And one thing I can assure you is that nobody in that group was terribly interested in having either their sunning or their conversation interrupted by a, uh, a uh, black attired uh, individual. And uh, they basically, this is one thing I learned about Rabbi Schuster early on. You could not insult him. You could not embarrass him. Nothing, nothing deterred him. And the insults that might have been cast at him, I pray that none of them came from me. I wish I was totally sure on that score. But I do remember that he left with one young man who 20 years later, I read in the newspaper, was a rabbi on a, uh, on a moshav in Israel. Within three years of that encounter, my wife and I were already taking Shabbos guests from him. So I had uh, an ongoing relationship with Rabbi Schuster for many years. The truth is I always expected to write about Rabbi Schuster. He was always part of a speech I would give about people who changed the world, not by virtue of any extraordinary abilities or self-evidently extraordinary abilities, but because of their sheer determination or whatever, uh, we, I mean, we'll discuss this, uh, his siyata deshmaya, they're able to be major historical figures. And I had a whole list of people. I mean, Mike Tress was, as, was another example of somebody like that. But I had been drawing up lists for years of what I thought would be a compilation in which Rabbi Schuster would be 20 pages. Um, I wasn't that confident that I could write a whole book uh, about him tapping people on the shoulder and saying, uh, would you like to meet a wise man? Are you Jewish? Would you like to know something more about your Judaism? Would you, are you interested in knowing about God? I mean, I didn't think I could get a whole book out of it. I will tell you, there was my, almost my last conversation with uh, Rameir Zlatowicz. He told me the book has to be at least 250 pages. And I said, uh, Rameir, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm, just, I'm just not sure about that. I can't, uh, it, Baruch Hashem, the book is much longer than that, and it, didn't, uh, and it wasn't a problem, uh, because it is also, the, and the book is really an account of 
a magical air in tshuva. That's actually part of the subtitle, a magical air of tshuva. It's one that my wife and I were very much part of, so it's, it's close to me in a way maybe that nothing else I've ever written has been close to me because I'm writing about my generation, the generation that came into yeshivas between 1972 and the mid-90s, things started to taper off a little bit and they were basically killed by the second intifada in 2000. But uh, so many of the people in the book are people that are friends of mine. I've, you know, we went through the major changes in our lives together. Right, now, uh, Reb, now Reb, Mayer's, Reb Mayer's foray into Kiruv began in the early 1970s. He was Nifter in 2014. What prompted the writing of the book at this point in time? <laughs> you mean in 2021 or in 2014? 2021. The book slept a little bit. As my, it, it, it's remarkable how books have tended to take a, a lot longer to finish. When I did the Reb Yaakov book, my first, uh, first with Art Scroll, first book at all, it took me nine months and I was totally immersed. Uh, today, I'm older, lazier, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm writing a lot of uh, columns at the same time, so I can't immerse myself in the, same, in the same way. This book started almost immediately after his passing. I don't remember whether I contacted Robinson Schuster or she contacted me, but we had both thought about the possibility. It was something that, you know, arose very quickly. I, in fact, went out and tried to solicit the first contribution uh, of somebody I knew was extremely close to, to a mayor and would want such a, such a book. So I started thinking about it immediately upon his passing. Uh, and in the end, uh, somebody had to light my feet to the fire when it eventually happened. Like, it was written almost as fast as the Rabbi Yaakov book when we finally put everything together and got going. Now, you referred before to the fact that Rabbi Meir was not the most charismatic person. The book highlights how he was not necessarily articulate. He wasn't necessarily the most polished Kirov activist, and yet he was able to draw people in. And you recount story after story about how he would tap someone on the shoulder and ask them if they would want to meet a wise man or come to a yeshiva, and he'd literally be 10 feet ahead of them and he's running away from them, almost. Um, what do you think was his secret, despite his lack of polish, to become perhaps, and, I, and I'd love to hear your opinion on whether he's the greatest contemporary modern-day individual Makarev. Okay, let me answer the last question first. The answer to the last question is, no. He, he was part, nobody, and he would have rejected the idea in any event. Part of his greatness is that he had no ego. He had no need to be the one who was going to introduce the, whoever he met at the Kotel or at the Central Bus Station. He had no need to be the one who was going to be Makar of them. He was content to get them to a yeshiva to get them, I mean, it's not that he didn't do other things. He built the Heritage House. He created an Israeli program in the 2000s. But he didn't have to be the star. He never made himself the star. He never talked about himself. He never used the word I. Uh, he, wasn't the, he wasn't a Makarov in the same sense that Rav Noach Weinberg, for instance, was a Makarov, somebody who convinced people to change their lives. He was the... He took a specific role, did it better than anybody else would, did. Would you did describe it, it him as the facilitator? Yeah. The, the, he was, you know, getting somebody in, he was the catalyst. He, getting people into the shiva is perhaps the most difficult step. You know, every day when we were in the Orsamath Base Midrash, we would see him pull up in a cab, a group of hirsute young men would get out looking quite confused. Where are they? What's happening? And, uh, and we called him the Pied Piper. We could not understand, and he'd sometimes show up many times a day. At Neve Yerushalayim, the largest women's uh, 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 seminary for Baal Tshuva, uh, the head of the beginner's program said every single woman who came in said the same thing. I would never get in a car with a strange man. I would never get in a car with a strange man. And yet they did. And here... The secret of his success was his very lack of charisma, his very lack of 
uh, you know, glib speech. They felt, okay, he's not trying to sell me a line. He's not somebody I have to be worried about. And plus, he would race ahead of them by 15 feet. He never walked with them. He walked, he raced ahead of them. One time, Dove Wallowitz, who, um, who purchased the building for the, uh, the boys' hostel, the Heritage House boy, uh, men's hostel, he said to Rav Shlomo Freifeld, Zechur Tzadik Lebracha, who was his rabbi, he said, I just can't understand how he's successful. He has no charisma whatsoever. And Rav Freifeld, who was a large and powerful man, banged his, head down, his hand down, and he said, charisma never made anybody from. Caring makes people from. People understood that he cared about them in a way that no one else had ever, ever cared about him. This was a common statement. I felt he cared about me and my neshama in a way no one else ever had. There's a woman, she was a, a Rhodes Scholar candidate. She was in the steps of the, uh, of the old city. And she saw how painful and difficult it was for him to speak to her. And, and, she, and she said to herself, I just imagine how, much this, how important this must be to him that he's willing to talk to me and force himself to speak to me. And then it came, another thought came into her mind. If he's willing to put himself through this, she didn't know how many times a day or how many years he never took a vacation. He never, uh, uh, for the first 14 years of his activity, never left Eretz Israel until he had to start doing fundraising. And she said, if he's doing this, and this poor, inarticulate, somewhat awkward, gangly figure is doing this, then he must care about my neshama more than anybody has ever cared about my neshama. Now, I found it fascinating that you mentioned in the book that it was kind of difficult to find that information about Reb Meir's younger years. Why was that, and how did you come up with the information that you did glean as to Reb Meir's upbringing? Listen, we really know very little about his upbringing. There's only one real interview in the first chapter, the Milwaukee chapter. The, I interviewed maybe two or three people who knew him in that period, his best friend, Jerry Glazer. The most important interview for that was certainly Rabbi Dr. Uh, Shia Tversky, who was his first Rebbe, in, uh, who ran the, the after-school Talmud Torah in his father's shul. He knew Rameir at that age, but he was painfully shy at that age as well. I, we know very little. Then he went to, to Chicago, to the Hebrew Academy, which endormed in the Skokie Yeshiva. And again, no one remembers him really much. They remember very little about him except his fervor in, of his davening that he always learned with a hat on in the base midrash. There are more people who remember him from near Yisrael, and I was able to find a number of them. Uh, Rav Shlomo Porter, who actually is from Milwaukee and followed him to Chicago, was somewhat younger, and then went to Baltimore. Um, uh, Rav Chaim Kass, who was the uh, person who, who first brought him to the Kotel and whom he went on his first visits to the Kotel. But there was really not much information about his family. He never talked about his family. He said the only thing he would say is that they were good people. But uh, it wasn't a religious family. He had a religious grandmother. And... Uh, there wasn't, I, I glean very little. There's, you know, with Rabbi Tversky and the, uh, Rabbi Dr. Tversky gave me, Zechot Tzadok Lebracha, was able to give me some background on the, on the Milwaukee community of that time. So I was able to put him in a context, but I wasn't really, I don't know very much about his childhood, and I know that it would have been very interesting either. He's not, a, he was not a person who, who reflected about himself or ever talked about himself. Mayor, mayor didn't talk was one of the lines that his wife said. Mayor did not talk. He did not talk about himself. He never used the word I. He didn't discuss his achievements. From reading your descriptions of his years in Ner Yisrael, he was described as the ultimate masmid. He was very close to the Rashiva of Rudiman, to Rav Kronglas. And anyone who knew him from that period of time would have said, okay, here's a man who's going to have a career perhaps in Kailul, right? Is that, would you say that's correct? I think in his day in, in, in Nere Yisrael that the number of people who went into Kolel was very small. It wasn't, Kolel was not a phenomenon in 1960 when he arrived at Nere Yisrael. Um, 
he probably, he might have tried teaching in some way, but it would have been difficult for him. He was artistic, he was artistic, and he thought maybe there would be some kind of parnasa in doing handcrafted, designed uh, ketubot. That, that was one thing that he thought about. He had a teaching certificate from Torah Masora, but um, it's hard to know. Rabbi Shmuel Bloom, Rabbi Shmuel Bloom told me he would certainly have been uh, voted the least likely to succeed in his class. Not because he wasn't intelligent, not because of any, you know, any lack of, of abilities, but he was, he, his ability to, to connect to people was somewhat limited. He took a Tainus Dibur every Shabbos and he would sit in the base Midrash whenever the other Bakrim went out to their various Rebbeim. He stayed in the base Midrash, he ate and, and then went to the base Midrash and he would pass out Stella Dora cookies to anybody who would give him a Devar Torah or pass out some dates to anybody who would give him a Devar Torah, but he wouldn't speak. Uh, he took a Tainus Dibur. Um, I don't know how close he was to, to Rav Ruderman. He was certainly close to Rav David Kronglass. That was certainly the figure who remained the most important figure, the most important model for him throughout his life. And certainly the idea that, an idea that Rav David spoke about a great deal, that everybody has a mission in life. You'll be judged by how well you you fulfill that mission by nothing else. It's not somebody else's mission, it's your mission. Your and mission you, doesn't you describe, happen to be. You describe in the book how he was shy at everything except for davening. Apparently when it came to davening, whatever inhibited nature he had, he let his guard down. Talk about that because you do highlight that several times in the book. He was the least inhibited davener I ever saw. He always davened from the front, in the ba- and when he was in a base midrash, he davened from the front because he didn't want people turning around and staring at him. He simply could not contain himself. As one person put it, he would look up, he would, uh, and, and when he finished davening, if he was davening from the Amud, you would look around and you'd expect to see Mashiach coming. You could not ex- think that Mashiach wasn't coming. Uh, people who hosted him in America on his fundraising trips, even if they were even if they were two floors below, they'd hear, hear him early in the morning stomping and banging and shouting. Uh, people said, if you didn't see him bench, you never saw benching. I mean, he would clap his hands before he would bench because he was so excited to be able to daven. The hosts talk about their children still daven. They still bench the way they saw a mayor bench. It was, it was a transformative event. As, uh, one young man said, upon watching him daven, and he, he said... Uh, I learned two things from his davening. There's a Ribbono Shol Olam, and this man knows him well. Now, people love numbers. They love statistics. Do we have any idea of just how many people Reb Meir touched and influenced, and obviously indirectly influenced? Do we have any idea, just to gauge how much of an impact Reb Meir had from when he first tapped that first Jew on the shoulder in 1971, like you said, when he was brought by Reb Chaim Kass till the early 2000s, till he was unable to do it anymore once his final illness set in. Depends on what you mean by influence, because let's say he talked to 10 people a day and he talked to many more. You just make a cheshbon up until 1984, we're talking about over 50,000 people that he had some contact with. And as he used to say, if they have a better impression of, what a, of a from Jew, that's also an effect. But it's so hard to... To break it down to numbers, what Rav Mendel Weinbach, the Rosh Hashib at Or Samayach, said, the Balei Tshuva institutions as we know them would not exist if it weren't for Rav Meir Schuster. But if we talk about sheer numbers, we're talking in the tens of thousands. One summer in Heritage House, there were a thousand people who came through the doors, I think of the Women's Heritage House, and every one of them went to seminary at some point over the course, over the course of that summer. They all experienced the Shabbos. How many people did he bring for Shabbos? There were sometimes between 50 and 100 people he would be leading as he would disperse them at one house after another on Shabbos. But, you know, then there are the people, then there are the children of those people. And then there's all the people that the, 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 the uh, and then there's the star catches. Let's not ignore the fact that so many of the people that he brought into the yeshiva for the first time went on to be superstars in, the, in, in, in our modern Jewish world. I mean, Lori Palatnik, the founder of the Jewish Women's uh, Renaissance Project, uh, 
he met her on a night at the Kotel. She was fleeing from an Arab hostel. It was raining out, a dreary, rainy night. Nobody was there. There were no passers-by. Why he was standing sentinel at the, at the Kotel makes no sense whatsoever. But she, she saw him, and she recognized him because her sister had become religious a year before and had invited him when he was in Toronto on a fundraising trip, had invited Lori to a Shabbaton. And she went up to him and said, do you remember me? I met you in such and such place. And then he got her, that night, she went to Neve Yerushalayim, eventually ended up at Iyat, another seminary, the Ishatora Women's Seminary. I mean, just her impact alone. But you have Shlomo Goldberg, uh, a major mechanic. You have Nachum Braverman, who founded HLA, which became one of the biggest and uh, most powerful branches of Aish. You have authors, Shimon Apistorf, who's written Sforim that have sold 250,000 copies. You, I mean, Art School can certainly appreciate it, what it means to have sold a quarter of a million copies of books like the, uh, uh, you know, his, his Survivor's Guide to Rosh Hashanah, or Survivor's Guide to Yom Kippur, things that are passed out in, in bulk by every, almost every Kiruv organization. You have uh, uh, Jeremy Kagan, who's it won the National Book Award and is a, it runs a seminary in Yerushalayim. This, the number of stars who came through, the number of families who became entire families. One person came in and then their siblings came. It's, it's, you, it, it's very hard. I say in the preface, I once was at a, 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 vort, for, a vort for a friend of mine, Baal Tshuva, and somebody who I knew from Kolo came in. I knew he wasn't a Balchuva, and I knew they could have never learned in the same base midrash. And I asked him, I had sat next to this, the second person who came in. We had sat together at Rav Zvi Kushlevsky's for many years. And I said, Rav David, how do you come to this? He said, because the first family that he brought that Gershon came to was us. So many people in Yerushalayim date themselves like the first Shabbos, the first Shabbos host. Who did Rav Meir bring them to? He was an integral part. When I did the uh, biography of Rav Noach Weinberg, most people skip the first step. They don't even say, I was brought to the yeshiva by Rav, Noach, by, by Rav Meir Schuster. It's like understood. It's like starting the fairy tale once upon a time. You know it already. Everybody was brought by Rav Meir Schuster. And when Rav Noach would talk about the power of one, the power of one person to change the world, his example was always Rav Meir Schuster. He was the example of one person who could change the world and it had nothing to do with anything, any particular natural abilities. As Rav Noach always emphasized, he always would ask his students, if Hashem were helping you, could you do it? You say you can't do it, but if Hashem were doing it for you or doing it with you, could you do it? So of course the answer to, to that is yes. The power, what he meant by the power of one was the power of one. Rav Meir Schuster understood that perhaps better than anybody. He believed in Siata Deshmaya. He was sure that he would be the recipient of Siata Deshmaya if he was Moser himself, if he gave his full kochos to it, and he aligned his purposes with Hashem's purposes. You know, in the, there's a Project Inspire video where he says at the end, the most important thing in the world is Kiruv. And that's how he lived his life. He lived his life uh, with total self-sacrifice, but for him it wasn't self-sacrifice. He was doing what the Rebona Sholem wanted of him, and he was confident of his success. In other words, the, 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 the amazing thing about this book, in my opinion, is, is what do we learn from Rameer Schuster? And in some ways we learn more from Rameer Schuster than we learn from a, a, a great figure who we talk about who was born with preternatural abilities, who had some unique talents, who knew all of Shas at 13, and so forth and so on. From a mayor Schuster, you have, no, you have no excuses. You can't get away from it. Why don't you do more? What's your excuse? You can't say, well, I wasn't, he wasn't born in, in a from home. He wasn't a mayuchas. He wasn't uniquely gifted in some obvious fashion other than his determination. But he shows us how does a person merit siyata deshmaya. Because everybody saw that about him. There was once a guy... Uh, who wanted to start a Spanish branch of Heritage House. He would take all the fundraising. He would run the place. So somebody said, so Rav Avram Edelstein, who ran 
Heritage House was the director, said, well, so why do you want to be associated with Heritage House? He said, I want to be part of the Siata Deshmaya that always attaches to everything that Reb Meir does. And I want to add what was so extraordinary about Reb Meir is you're talking about people having excuses. Many people will say, I need to be part of an organization. I need to be in charge of some kind of operation in order to draw people in. For the first decade and a half of what Reb Meir was doing, he was merely a feeder to places like Eish HaTayra, Yeshiva Ar-Sameach, Neve Yerushalayim. And like you said, so many people, when they recounted their life story later on, sometimes they left out that first step because, you know, Reb Meir wasn't looking for the accolades. He wasn't looking for the recognition. And that was extraordinary in that he wasn't in charge of any official operation. He was merely the facilitator bringing these people to the door, so to speak. Okay, there's sort of a myth about Romero Schuster, which I do want to dispel a little bit, which is, the myth is that he was a one-trick pony, that all, the only thing he could do was tap people on the shoulder or, uh, you know, approach, uh, didn't, he didn't tap the women on the shoulder, so he had more than that, or asked them what t- if they knew what time it was or something like that. The fact of the matter is that in 1984, he created the Heritage House, two hostels, one for men and one for women, which had a tremendous impact. Uh, and this was against, most of the Baal Shuva institutions did not want Heritage House. But he felt there had to be a middle station, there had to be a middle ground where somebody could attend some classes but not fully enter into a yeshiva or a seminary where they could feel they could feel things out for a little bit before jumping in. And he felt that was important. He created that. He wasn't the only person who thought of the idea of a hostel but he was the only person who went out and raised the money for it uh, and, and made it happen. And it was an extremely influential uh, institution on the entire, on the entire uh, Kiruv mo- mo- movement. Also, in, in 2000, he created a whole marechet in Israel. He didn't, I mean, he raised the money for it, but he came to Rabbi Aber Medelstein and he said to him, we have to do something for the Israelis. There's nobody else coming. The Intifada has closed. There's no traffic at the Kotel. We have to do something for the Israelis. So Rabbi Edelstein said to him, he said, Ramer, there's just one problem. You don't speak Hebrew well, and I don't speak Hebrew well. But that didn't stop him. So I asked Rabbi Edelstein, so what did you do? He said, I just hitched myself to him like I always did and depended on his siyata deshmaya that something would, would come out of it. And something did come out of it. Uh, it's less known because... It was, an, it was an Israeli program in 11 different centers, or 9 to 11 different centers uh, in his lifetime, and some of them are still going, which also had their, their impact, too. He, wasn't, he, he thought about what he did. He had his ideas. He had his perspective. He fought against. He would not allow himself to become subject to any uh, uh, institution or board of directors. He wanted to control the situation because he did not want to be dependent upon a slow moving. He liked to do things fast. Rav Edelstein said he couldn't bear to be even at a, at a, a red light. If he was at a red light, he'd take a right turn and go around the block rather than stop. He, couldn't, he didn't like to stop. He, didn't like to, he was always moving. And the, and one of the things that everybody talks about is how fast he moved. There was an all-state basketball player who once challenged him to a race in the old city and he and, that, and he was wearing, gym, the, the, the basketball player was wearing gym, gym shoes. He was 20 years younger than Romero, but Romero beat him. He also challenged him to an arm wrestling match once. If Romero wanted to do something, his determination was, was sort of unstoppable. Uh, I think his sense of urgency was another critical component. There was, he once ran into a group of Mexicans at the uh, Kotel, the Mexican Jews, Jews, visit, uh, Jews visiting from Mexico, and uh, there was a rabbi running a Spanish program at Asia Torah named Rav Sender Hakamovich. He's the same one who wanted to start the Spanish-speaking heritage house. Rav Meir runs up from the Kotel, goes up to, into the middle of the old city, and he finds this Rav uh, Hakamovich. He says, come quick, come quick. There's a group at the Kotel. I can't speak to them. It's Spanish, but you have to come. So Rav Hakamovich said to him, what do you mean I have to come? They're gone already. You think they waited? You think they're waiting down there? And Romare was insistent, no, you have to come. And he said, but it's pointless. He finally realized it would be quicker for him to walk down to the Kotel and come back than it would be uh, to convince Romare to just leave him alone. So he went down there, and the group was still standing there. So 
Uh, he asked them, why did you wait? And they said, we don't know exactly why we waited, but we saw that it was so important to him that we couldn't leave. It was so important to him that we couldn't leave. Uh, that's, he lived his life with a sense of urgency, which is, he believed in what he was doing. He believed entirely in, in what he was doing, and, uh, and that's really the secret of the siyata deshmaya that he had, and uh, he really lived for Kaddish Baruch Hu and to do his, to do his ratzon. And he did what he did despite living a life that was not always easy. It was fraught with tremendous challenge, whether you allude to some of the financial challenges that he experienced over the years. You have a chapter about the passing of his daughter, which was a very trying time. Talk about that as well. His beloved daughter was killed in a, in a tragic accident. This is the story that, probably the best known story about Rabbi Schuster. It's the one you know, I talked to friends of mine who were in Or Sameach at the time, people who preceded me by five or six years. And it's the first thing they always mention when they talk about Rabbi Schuster. He, his oldest daughter, her nickname was Shatzi, but everybody knew her as Shatzi. She was one woman who was, lived in Ezra's Torah where they lived for one summer said, everybody on the block knew her. Everybody Every, she captivated everybody. She said, on the way back to America after that summer, the only thing my husband and I talked about on the, tr- on the plane was Shatzi. It was a, it, it, she was a captivating child. On Isru Chag of Pesach, uh, she asked her mother for a few, uh, you know, for a few lirot to go to the Makolit and buy some gum on Isru Chag. And she was hit by a truck, an Arab, uh, Arab-driven truck on her way to the Makolit. And uh, Rav Schuster was absolutely besotted with her. He loved her dearly. But nevertheless, after two days of sitting Shiva, he became extremely agitated, extremely agitated, because he thought of all those people who were going to be at the Kotel, and that might be their only chance. That visit to the Kotel might be their only chance to find out something about their Yiddishkeit. And if he weren't there, that opportunity would be lost. And he sent a shayla to Rav Eliyashev, Sechot Tzadok Levracha, and he said, it's pikuach nefesh, my being there is pikuach nefesh, that surely is docha sitting shiva. And Rav Eliyashev didn't, didn't say his calculation was wrong. He said it was right, but he said, no one will understand. And no one will understand, it will hurt you in your subsequent work. You can't go. It's, it'd be maris ayin with respect to everybody Everybody else, it won't be understood. And among the people who didn't understand it was his wife. I mean, she told me, this is the space of close to 50 years, she told me how much it hurt her. She said, what, you can't give a week to your, to your oldest child? I mean, she, she couldn't understand it. You have to understand her situation. She's a, a great lady in her own right. But she, because her mayor didn't brag about anything he did and never talked about it, didn't share stories, she didn't have any of even the vicarious pleasure of knowing that her husband was doing great things. She only began to really know who he was, what he had achieved during the Shiva period. And this book has been, you know, a tremendous nechama for her, too, to see, to, you know, to know whom she was married to and what her sacrifices were. In many respects, I would say her sacrifices were greater because she was, had to take on by far the bulk of the parenting in the household. She had to be the figure. Uh, she was a dominant in, in the child rearing. She brought the kids to America to see their grandparents on both sides by herself because he did not leave Eretz Israel until he had to for fundraising. And only now is she dis- discovering fully what, what his accomplishments were. That didn't happen so much during, uh, during, his, during his lifetime. But in any event... Um, when Rav Eliashev heard this story, heard the question, he was so struck by the person of such purity who could think about going to the Kotel. And I, I believe he did go to the Kotel on, on uh, Shabbos because it was no, he, he, so he, because it wouldn't be morning before Hesia. And he did go to the Kotel. He just couldn't restrain himself entirely uh, from going. But Rav Eliashev came and made a Shiva call. And... Uh, 
and this was something very rare for Rabbi Eliashev to leave Mea Sharim. He didn't, he didn't leave easily, and it was a not, not mabakak. It wasn't a small thing. It was a, it was a big thing. And, uh, but that you know, indicates how he was totally taken aback by the question that Rabbi Meir had directed to him. Now, the book has dozens, hundreds, perhaps, of fascinating stories and anecdotes, but there's one story that you mentioned was Rabbi Reb Meir's favorite story about Brother Adrian. I don't know how much time we have to go through so many stories, but at least the story of Brother Adrian. Take a moment and tell us about that, because you yourself describe it as Reb Meir's favorite. It, it, well, it's the one he did, if he ever could be forced to speak at, at a fundraising gathering, uh, it's the one he often, he often told. This Adrian, the father Adrian, was a Catholic seminarian. He came to Israel, and Rav, uh, Rav Meir met him at the Kotel, and he asked him whether he was Jewish. And he thought to himself, would he like to go to Yeshiva? So he thought to himself, well, that's interesting. I'd certainly like to know something more about Judaism. It is the, the mother religion of, in, his, in his lights. So he went to Asia Torah. He did very well there, and at some point, though, one of his parents became sick. He had to go home. He was happy at Aish, and he was, uh, and he went, to, and he went to, to say goodbye to Reb Noach. And he mentioned when he was there uh, that he, that he was Catholic, that he was a seminarian. Reb Noach blew up. He was furious at him. He said, "You know, I collect money for this yeshiva to bring to, for Jewish boys to introduce them to Torah." You stole, you, this, is th- this is theft. You had no right to come here under false pretenses. He says, the only thing that you could possibly do to be metakin, to correct what you did here, is if you ever come across a, a Jewish boy who knows nothing about Torah, and you can share something of what you might have learned here, that might have some benefit. Anyhow, Father Adrian went back to America. He became, I think, the principal of a school in Vermont, and there was a Jewish family nearby. It was a very, uh, it was a private school, a prep school, a Catholic prep school. But it was known as the academically superior school in that area. So when this uh, young man's parents were looking for a school for him, and they were executives, they were highly educated, they naturally sent him to this Catholic school. And it wasn't a problem for him. He was raised in a very reform home. Um, and as he got through the end of his senior year, I don't think anybody even knew that he wasn't uh, Catholic. Uh, he, the Father Adrian called him and he said, you only have one credit you need. You don't have to go to classes. Maybe you'll just write a paper on some religious figure. And this young man went to his Reformed temple. He went into the library and he decided to write a paper on Rabbi Akiva. So he came back uh, with this paper on Rabbi Akiva and Father Adrian said, why did you choose to write about a Jewish figure? He said, I'm Jewish. So Father Adrian remembered his promise to Rav Noach. Now this could have been 10 years later. It could have been much later than that. He remembered his promise to, to, to Rav Noach and he started learning with him. They started learning Mishnah. He taught him Rashi script. He taught him a variety of things that he would not otherwise have had. And this young man wanted to go to near Yisrael. This is how I know that the story is true. I, I, I mean, I, this is the, the, the aid, the, the makor for this story is the late Rabbi Tendler, who was the uh, principal of the high school in Nair Yisrael. I think what happened is that he went to a camp during the summer. He worked in one of the Frum camps, and uh, Rebetzin Tendler was the nurse in this camp. Anyhow, at some point, she, he told her, I want to talk to your husband. I would like to come to Nair Yisrael as a student, as a student there. And Rabbi Tendler met with him, and he told him he could come, but the boy's parents had no interest whatsoever in his going there. A few years later, Rabbi Tendler was in Eretz Israel, and he was at the Kotel, and he met a from-looking young man, and he came and introduced himself, and he said, I'm the same one who couldn't come to, my parents wouldn't let him go to Nair Israel, but they let me come to Israel, and I went to Or Sameach. And so Rev. Tendler was able to confirm this whole story. He's a source of this. Now, the impact from the time that Rameir brought, brought Father Adrian into, uh, into Asia Torah to the time that this young man became from could have been 15 or 20 years. I mean, there's a, there could be a major time span. He went from being a seminarian. Father Adrian went from being a, fa- a seminarian to being the principal of the school and so forth. That took time. 
But uh, as a friend of mine, uh, Rav Yaakov Steinberg, who is very close to Rav Schuster, and he's really the central figure in Chapter 5 of the book, when I describe the, the historical circumstances within which Rav uh, Schuster worked, he said he believes he told the story because he was showing that there's this, a spiritual conservation of energy, where something is done with pure intent, uh, as and his bringing Father Adrian to the to Asha Torah, it will pay off its benefits sometime down the line. We don't know where, but it will pay off its benefits. So uh, when you ask me to what was his impact, can you give us some numbers? You don't know the impact on all those that he touched who never went to yeshiva, but they may not have intermarried, or they may have started. They may have been more open to Shabbos, or if one of their children decided to go to yeshiva. It wasn't as foreign to them as it would have been if they had never met Rev, Rev uh, Schuster. And this was just the spiritual conservation of, of energy. What starts with a pure intention has, has results. Now, you quote in the book the famed ding of uh, Suki and Ding musical fame, where he describes that the well-known song, Just One Shabbos, composed and sung by Mordechai ben David, was actually inspired by none other than Reb Meir himself. Talk about that for a second. I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't even know the song. So when I saw this in a Mishpacha article that sort of was lit up a light in my eye, I know Mordecai Ben David. I know I know Suki. And I know and I don't know Ding, but I know Suki. And uh, but I really didn't know much about the song. But he describes there that they were in Eretz Israel together. He Mordecai Ben David and 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 Ding were in Eretz Israel together, and they would go down to the Kotel on Friday nights, and they would see all the people being lined up, and 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 and, and that Ramer would then walk with them to their various hosts throughout Yerushalayim. He would get home, he himself would not get home until about 10 o'clock at night after having dropped off the, uh, all these people at, vari at various homes throughout uh, between the Kotel, between the Damascus Gate and, uh, and his neighborhood of Ezra's Torah. So it was, uh, uh, and, that's, and that inspired the song. But if you expect me to sing the song, I won't be able to because... <laughs> no, that's quite all right. Now, Yonason, you've written biographies on Rabbi Yaakov, Rav Dessler, Rabbi Moshe Scherer, uh, I don't know who I'm leaving out, Lieutenant Birnbaum. And Mike Tress. Mike Tress, of course, they called him Mike. How was it different writing this book on Rabbi Meir uh, compared to the others? The truth is, every book is different. Um, every book is different. And in the introduction to Rabbi Yaakov, I make a point there, I, des I describe what my theory, my philosophy of Jewish biography was. And Rabbi Yaakov was something of a chiddish in the world of Jewish biography because it, it didn't fit, we didn't try to fit him into some mold of what a gadol was. I mean, as I say there in the introduction, the piske halakha that are quoted here are quoted because they were Rabbi Yaakov's. If he's important enough for a book, he's important enough to have his Piskei Halakha quoted, but not because they necessarily are the consensus on any issue. Every, what makes a good Jewish biography of a, an important Torah leader is that you understand something of his uniqueness. You're able to bring out his uniqueness. So uh, Rameir was not a great Torah scholar. He certainly was a dedicated uh, student of Torah. He always had chavrusas throughout his life. One time he was in the hospital prepping for a gallbladder operation, was already admitted to the hospital at night, and he had his chavrusa come over and take him out of the hospital so they could learn together, and then snuck, him back into, snuck himself back into the hospital. So he was dedicated to his learning, that's, that's for sure. But, um, you know, again, Mike Tress wasn't... Um, Mike Tress also had no yeshiva background. Uh, the difference... Everybody is so unique in their way. I once... He wrote an article about if Rav Shraga Feibel Mendelovitz would have come to America when Rav Yaakov did, or Rav Yaakov would have come to America when Rav Shraga Feibel did, so Rav Yaakov would not have created Torah Vedas. But Rav Shraga Feibel would not have been able to lead an already formed to give 
each one had his particular role in his particular time, so each one is absolutely different. If, if you don't feel that you've never met that, that <clears throat> Rav Meir is different than anybody you've met or any other biography that you've uh, <coughs> encountered, then I failed, then I feel I failed as an author. That's why it's so, <laughs> I, I, I'll share with you that when somebody says to me the Art Scroll biography, sometimes I've, a friend of mine once in a Jewish Observer article wrote about the Art Scroll biography of Rav Shraga Fievel uh, Mendelovitz. And I called him up, I got his answering machine, I left a very sharp message on the phone. I said, Rabari, don't ever do that again. Publishers do not write books. Authors write books. There is no such thing as, I do not write a standardized biography, whether it's Art Scroll or anybody else. These are my books, and I don't want them to be called the Art Scroll biography. They are Art Scroll biographies, and it's, you know, I'm deeply appreciative, it's certainly with the Rabbi Yaakov, the, the, uh, the ability to partner with Rabbi Nelson. That was my first book, and of course, because of Rabbi Yaakov's prestige in the American uh, yeshiva world, Art Scroll was very careful about the book, but it's my book. Uh, it's not only my book, but it's my book. And, uh, and I don't like, you know, I don't like the, the anybody to, to, like, it seems to me that when you call it the Art Scroll biography, you're saying that there's a formula, and there are no formulas. Everyone is Now, speaking, speaking of you for a moment, speaking of you, who would you say over the course of your life, looking back, Kanai Nohara, and for many more years, you've had a very successful career in writing. You've influenced so many people through your books, through your wonderful columns. Who has influenced you most profoundly uh, when you look back, both on a personal level and also as far as your writing career? On a personal level, my father. Well, I'm not sure. It may actually be my mother, and I'd like to think it was my father, but they bring very, very different things to the table. Um, and I'm coming out with a collection of essays, many of which are autobiographical that I've written over the years, and my father is no longer with us. My mother, the Badel ben Chaim Lechaim, is, Baruch Hashem, and still can take a lot of joy in what her children do. I would say, in terms of writing, in terms of writing my uh, high school, uh, my, my AP English teacher in high school, and what she did for me was to tell me that I wasn't a very good writer. I mean, I remember that the essay that I wrote, I thought it was a brilliant discussion of the Gore Vidal-William Buckley debates in the in 1968 uh, convention, I think the Republican convention, very vitriolic, and I thought I dissected them brilliantly, and I sent it off as my essay to Harvard, and she flunked me on the paper. So, and I guess Harvard wasn't that much more impressed either, because I didn't get in there either. So, uh, and then I, you know, she always, I, I learned from her, and I don't know if students today can still get this, writing is a skill. It's not a natural gift. I mean, my father was a good writer. I'm a good writer. My kids are good writers. There is some inherent you know, love of words, but it's still a skill. You get better at it. You get better at it by doing it. And if she hadn't convinced me I wasn't very good, I brought my papers from my freshman year of college at the University of Chicago, and I was getting straight A's. I gave her a whole pile of papers, and she looked at a few of them, and she said, but you don't write any better than you did in high school. So, and, uh, you know, that's by the time I'm a junior Phi Beta Kappa going to Yale Law School, and I still didn't impress my, my high school English teacher. But, you know, that is, if you get somebody who cares enough about you to make you better, uh, that's important. Uh, law school, I think you, I did, you do pick up some writing skills. I wrote a long article for the Yale Law Journal and that, you know, there's a certain type of writing. I, I wrote a lot. I preferred writing long papers to taking tests. So you do a lot of it and you get better, I hope. Um, and I read a lot. You get better because uh, I always was a big, big, big reader. And you begin to see, you identify things in certain writers that that are good, and then you figure out, well, how did that work? How did they do it? And a uh, lot, lot. Uh, uh, I used to have a friend who'd, who's written a lot of books, but he told me he never read any books. I said, so don't expect me to read yours, because I'm not going to. <laughs> um, it's, 
you know, it's, it, 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 I mean, m many of my closest relationships have been formed through writing. Um, I'd say the person who I was probably closest to over many, over 20, 25 years was Rav Nissen Walpen, Zechard Tzadik Lebracha, the editor of the Jewish Observer, and he and Rav Nelson Sherman from Art School were best friends going back to their days in Torah Vadas, along with Rav Mendel Weinbach is the third one of that triumvirate. All of them were superb writers. And those relationships with Rav Nelson, with Rav Nissen Wolpen, uh, you know, they're the most precious relationships to me. But I was already a pretty good writer before Rav Nissen got his hands on me, and a pretty good writer before... It, but... But the love of writing, the love of the power of words was something that certainly brought us together. It's certainly been responsible for most of the, many of the most rewarding relationships in my life. And I should say that my mother was a pretty good editor of, le of Letters from Camp, and my wife is an awfully good editor today. <laughs> and sometimes when she doesn't like a column one this week... I, I just say, well, everyone can't be the best. It's a line one of my kids gave me once. Every week can't be the best. <laughs> she said, but you knew I wouldn't like this one, and that's why you didn't show it to me. Well, again, we're very grateful to you for your timeless literary contributions to the Jewish world. Uh, you've been an icon of sorts in that sense. So we thank you for your past contributions. We thank you for this newest book, which we're excited here at Oxcroll to share with the Jewish world a book that I'm sure is going to be very well received. And we want to wish you continued Hatzlacha, inspiring through the written word. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much.